You are listening to Maze and Blue on WCBN. She drives it in the air to deep right field. Back goes Halfley, looking up, and it's out of here. Alessandra Giampolo with her first home run of the year. And it's a line shot over the right center field wall. And it gives the Wolverines a one to nothing lead. Jenny's one-two pitch hit on the ground up the middle, moving to her left is Ewing. She has it, throws the first in time, and the ball game is over. And Jenny Ritter fires a no-hitter, her fifth of her career, and the first in the postseason. Michigan defeats Youngstown State by a score of four to nothing behind the bat of Alessandro Giampolo and a no-hit performance of Jenny Ritter. Here are your hosts, Rob Something told.
Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have here with me in the studio, Danielle Evans. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it sounds like you've been on quite a rigorous... The book was... um, You're here in town. Uh, This is actually a tape program. So um, Danielle is here um, (laughs) to read from her, her, her new collection, her first collection of short stories, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, out with Riverhead books um just this september yeah just last week so literally hot (laughs) off the press indeed and you said since last week you've done 20 radio interviews already yeah it's been kind of it's been wonderfully crazy but it's been a little bit crazy i had no idea that this many people wanted to talk to me (laughs) hopefully someone out there wants to listen yes (laughs) i'm sure listeners are out there (laughs) that's what i always tell myself anyway danielle Well, before we go any further, I'm going to read your short biography in the back of the book, and then we'll go from there, okay? Um, Danielle Evans is a graduate of Columbia University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her stories have appeared in the Paris Review and A Public Space and have been collected in the Best American Short Stories 2008 and 2010 and in New Stories from the South 2010. She teaches literature at American University in Washington, D.C. All right. Now that sounds so fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to write that short bio, or did someone else? I did not. Someone else made it. (laughs) So what's so fancy about it? (laughs) How can we unfancify it, or should we just jack it up? (laughs) Well, we'll leave it fancy. I think I'll do a good enough job of unfancifying myself for the rest of the hour. (laughs) Well, I hope so. have some fun (laughs) but it seems like when you've been talking to like for example 20 interviews already um are you sort of wondering what else can I really say or do you find yourself um it's sort of is it nice to have a rhythm and some ideas you want to talk with people about you know much like many of the characters in my story I always want the thing that I'm not getting so sometimes I'll have an interview where I only get questions that I've been asked like Ten times before, and I think, oh, I'm I'm going almost on script now. I wish that somebody would ask me something different. And somebody asked me something crazy, and it totally throws. <laughs> like I don't know what I just said. I hope that was okay. So, um, well, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, there, it's great to be able to talk about the book period and. I just never want to feel like I don't do rehearsed charm. I occasionally do improvisational charm, <laughs> but so I don't want to ever feel like, oh, I have this script, and these are the things that I say about the book. Uh, but I also, the, the risk of not being on script is that occasionally I just say things that I don't know where they came from. <laughs> right, right. But that's kind of the beauty of, of of the moment. That's what I'm hoping happens today for us, Danielle. <laughs> so, so say whatever you'd like. <laughs> well, well, let's fill in a little bit more of your biography then. Um, and so here are some questions that... I know you've already <laughs> sort of some maybe a little bit older terrain because I love how you talk about writing from when you were a kid, like you've just always been writing. And it's not like you're so elderly right now either. <laughs> um, do you mind if I ask how, how old you are? Um, I will be 27 in November. <laughs> oh, coming up. <laughs> so Scorpio? Yeah. Okay. So so 27. It's uh, a, the rock star age, kind of a, <laughs> an interesting year. Um, indeed. But but so you but you've been writing since you were a little kid. Yeah, right? and I mean there was never a time when I didn't think that I wanted to be a writer. And even when I wasn't explicitly thinking about it, I was just talking to a colleague the other day about how I could never keep a diary as a kid. 
Like, what I would was just it? There. Was it like the pressure of the day today recounting? Or? Well, it was like I wanted it to be more interesting, so I would just start lying in the diary because yes. I'd be like, "This is so boring. What if somebody read it? I don't want them to think this is my life." <laughs> the birth of a fiction writer. <laughs> so it's a good thing that I discovered, and I think that's part of why I mean, I studied anthropology in college, and I would have the same frustration where I had to stick to the truth of the, or at least some approximation of the truth, and I would think, "But, but you didn't." mean to say that you meant to say this thing or oh but that was so polite what if we let it be messy and and exploded the situation a little bit and I I felt like if I stuck to a truth-telling profession those impulses would eventually catch up with me and make me either miserable or on trial (laughs) one or the other (laughs) so I like the path you took so far yeah Danielle and I think it's funny because in one of the 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 interviews. Um, you mentioned that when you were a kid, you were right. You were interested in, in morality tales. So I, I love that sort of then um, one eighty into like the well. You've got to make it sound good, even if it takes a lie. Um, <laughs> but, but why do? You, wh- how old were you when you were sort of interested in how to be a good person? And I think you wrote like rules for that, and it was oh, on yeah. your refrigerator at home. I think I was three or four. I, I just moved back to D.C. and so I'd, I've been bouncing around the country for like the last. 10 years almost. And my parents, I left some stuff in their houses that I didn't take with me bouncing across the country. So I got it all back because they're like, oh, now you're back in D.C. and you have a one-bedroom apartment. Clearly you can take all of these boxes of things that you left in, in with us for all of these years. So I was going through them and there were all of these things that I wrote when I was very small. Oh, and how old are you at this point when you're back in D.C. with the one-bedroom apartment? Oh, this was just last year. So oh, I 25. See. Okay. 24, 25. Okay. So I got, but I recently, so I've been going through, you know, boxes of stories or instructions that I wrote when I was three or four, (laughs) mostly like picture books with what you could loosely call words underneath. So there are many napkin drawings. Apparently I was fond of going to restaurants and feeling like people were misbehaving. And so drawing on the napkin what they should have been doing, some instructions. (laughs) um, How many of these do you have? This sounds like another book. Like two napkin poems that survived. There was one night we were lobbying for an Iowa. There used to be this... Um, like less formal reading series and and so there'd be a theme to it sometimes and everyone was lobbying for or not everyone I guess because it would have happened if everyone had been lobbying for it but a group of us were lobbying for a juvenilia night when everyone would just come like read something they wrote when they were very small and I don't know there were a bunch of guys who were like why would anyone want to sit through that sounds terrible or or anyone would do a bad child writing (laughs) so so, yeah that never happened but but I would have had some really excellent contributions Oh, definitely, and illustrated too. Indeed. So, it's, and maybe that because in this your your present short story collection, you've chosen not to illustrate with na- napkin drawings <laughs> or otherwise, and you're missing some really great stick figures. Let me tell you, <laughs> some action with the well. Well, I love the idea that you're drawing on napkins, I or even on um, drink coasters. I think it should be like no holds bar, you know, and put them together. Well, maybe the next book. Perhaps. Yeah. Actually, the next book does have some visual elements, but I'm not drawing them. The computer will be doing the drawing for me. It involves a political campaign, and so are the, there are some really fun Photoshop political ads. Is this is this the novel? Yeah. The, the Empire Has No Clothes. It's a, it's a novel about a woman who works at a progressive charter school. Who um, Her job is to write a progressive history textbook, which proves an increasingly impossible task. And uh, I just said this novel was about like a history book and, and a political campaign, and it made it sound like the most boring novel ever. I promise it's not. There's lots of sex so and drugs. That's why. The, oh, sex and drugs and drawings. <laughs> and there's some drawings. Indeed, there are some really fun drawings. Actually, drawings about drugs, even. There's a, there's a political campaign surrounding drugs. Um, <laughs> there are, I just made this novel sound like it's completely incoherent, but I promise it spent a long time making it map out, and it will all come together in the end. 
and and if anyone has read some of your short stories and and although we're saying um the book is just hot off the press. I mean, your stories have been out in the world and, and recognized already. The Paris Review chose, as we said in the, the fancy bio, <laughs> like where they're appearing in the best American short stories. I think Salman Rushdie picked in 2008 Virgins, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's that's how you that's how you that's your lead story. Is, is it? Right, the in the first book, one? yes, in the book, in the collection, and then um, just re- recently, Richard Russo with um, the uh, I, I love the title. Someone ought to tell her there's nowhere to go. Yeah, that story took me the longest, probably all of them, to get done. So I was really excited. And when you say the long longer, because you said Virgin sort of came as a sort of a gift, some kind of arriving, even though you had to do the work yeah. of getting it down, right? So what is, how long, when you say how long, what's your, define your terms, Danielle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, virgins, I mean, I was actually, I was at the gym in Iowa City is when I was in graduate school. And I guess I just let whoever was working the front desk plug their iPod into the gym speakers. And so somebody was really nostalgic for like 1996 that day. (laughs) And so it was happening in my head while I'm on the elliptical and I'm, start writing this story. And I was thinking about the sort of, I, was, I mean, I was put back in that time period, but I was also thinking about, wow, like this was the music in my head when I was thinking about sex for the first time and, and thinking about that point in time. And there's something about music that does have a kind of transportive quality. And so I was I was back there and I and then this girl's voice appeared in my head and I had, I think, like dinner plans or probably drinking plans. I was in grad school that night. And so I, I canceled them because I was like, I have to go home and write this story about this girl who loses her virginity the day that Tupac dies. And... Uh, my friend was like, that sounds like a terrible story. Why, why would you do that? Come have a $3 martini. And so I, but, but I didn't. And and I wrote through the story and the first draft came really easily. And I was giving a reading then. And so I got to read it out loud a bunch of times and it came together. And I did go through some editing later, but the basic material of the story was just kind of there. Because it came with that music. Because uh, yeah. Tupac was coming through the speakers. You're on the elliptical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and so and then it sort of unfolded with your two characters of the two young girls. And yeah, that's that's great and also interesting. I I think it's kind of well, it's it's great that you said that you also turned down the the fun moment because this had was you knew was valuable somehow you recognized it. I mean, I think that I'm I'm not ever going to be one of those writers who's like I write from nine to noon every day and why that. not. Because I have no, I don't have that kind of discipline, and I also do find that there are there are days when if I sat by my computer all day, it would be wasted, and I'd have forgotten why why I was writing. But the trade off for that is, you know, when the moment's there, I listen to it, and you have to respect the moment when it shows up. If you're not going to be one of those people who forces yourself to create the moment, and I have not learned to be one of those people who forces themselves to create the moment. Right, but it's I don't think you need to be then. Because you've got that other part. When did you figure that out, Danielle? Were you like... Um... When did I figure out I have no discipline? <laughs> um, you could ask my parents. Did you, I know, I was going to say, did, when did your mom point that out? Um, no. <laughs> no, actually, the other, the part where you thought, it, it is important to me. So I'm, I'm just, you know, fun I be damned. <laughs> in that sense, grad school was good for me because I went, I mean, I went young. I went straight out of college. And I think that until then, writing had been something I was good at, right? Like, I did it, and people said nice things to me about it, and I moved on with my life, and I didn't I didn't struggle with it the way that I learned to. It was, you know, what was there was there, and what was not was not. I didn't think it was all perfect, but I thought, people are going to let me get away with this. And I think at a certain point, it became a matter of, it was more important to me to have it where I wanted it to be than to feel like 
oh, somebody might love me for this. Like, I think I was in somewhat of a hurry then to have my work in the world in a way that the idea of sitting with a story for years seemed kind of terrifying. And I learned to do that in grad school. And I learned that it was worth it. And how, and I, I mean, is it possible to even say how? Because was it something about decon like the reading that you were doing at the time or deconstructing other people's work or uh, I think it was just seeing other people do it. I think it was seeing being struggle. around writers who would say, Oh, this is the eleventh draft and I've been doing this story for seven uh. years and it's twenty pages and you would think, Oh. Uh. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. what I'm supposed to be doing. And there are still stories that I mean or, come or together. What if I did do that? More quickly. Um and part of it is learning to respect your own editorial judgment and to read in such a way that you can sort of see when you're when you're trying to save something that can't be saved and when you're actually working toward the best version of something. And, and it's a hard instinct, and I don't know that I, I mean, anyone ever gets it quite right, but I, it's, it's something that I think the, the, the longer you think critically about your own work and the longer you filter feedback, you learn. Yeah, because there's some people that you almost, maybe it's because of their own writing or what they believe about writing or their, right? Then you sort of trust what they, you might weigh what they say. Right, yeah. But, I mean, I think... It, and, but also, you're saying you got to get your own. Yeah, I mean, I've been out of workshop for a while now, and but I'm starting to read reviews, which is a lot like being in workshop, <laughs> because you sort of get all of these different opinions, and everybody's like, this is the best story, and this one doesn't work at all, and somebody else is like, that's the best story in the book. This one's terrible. and um, Or they say, oh, it's all good, or it's all weak, and you have to sort of know that there are valuable things to be taken from some of that. There are no valuable things to be taken from other parts of that. At the end of the day, you're the one responsible for your work and, and you're the one sort of making the decision as to what's right and what's not. Because you're making. Let's take a short break and we'll come back. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle Evans, today on Living Writers, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, her story collection out with Riverhead Books. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Not Someone's always paying for that banter, baby. I went to a cobbler to fix a hole in my shoe. He took one look at my face and said, I can fix that hole in you. I beg your pardon, I'm not looking for a cure. I've seen enough from my friends in the depths of the God sick blues. You know, I. Welcome back. <laughs> Most welcome you've ever been. <laughs> welcome back to Living Writers. Um, that was a great song, was it? Well, today on the program, Danielle Evans is here and in the studio with me. Her book, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. Um, and I asked uh, Danielle before, you know, via email, if like what songs that you'd like to play. And this, these, we started out with 
Etta James and then now Jenny Lewis. Will you talk a little bit about the yeah, why you chose? We might be songs? getting progressively less classy. I must warn you. Um, not that Jenny Lewis is a classy lady herself, but um, I like most writers have a touch of OCD, and so when I get into a writing phase, I can't. I get distracted by music in this way that I can't listen to like an entire album because I notice the changes too much. So I'll play an entire song like over and over again for a day while I'm writing. And I play the song a lot of writing days because it's just so gorgeous. I mean, her voice just kills me. And Etta James, of course, also. I mean, and also thinking as a, as a writer, they're both storytellers and they're storytellers who sell you with their voice in this really lovely way. And, you know, I think many writers, if we could be rock stars, probably would because it would be a shorter path to the same emotional impact. But but I am uh, have no singing capability. I've been booed off of several karaoke stages, so oh, we do what we can. Pshaw. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be booed off this stage, Daniel. <laughs> if I started singing, you might. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> But and it's it's funny that that song with um because it's called acid tongue is it mm-hmm. and the chorus is actually even though it's very soothing and yearn the yearning is coming through she's saying I'm I'm a liar which connects back to this whole like our sort of joke not joke but sort of serious joke about fiction being a way of if you're gonna lie yeah. <laughs> away from the truth you know <laughs> so it kind of fits indeed and I think that that's it's it's another reason why it's a song I like to listen to as a writer and I think even I beg your pardon I'm not looking for a cure I think that's a really interesting way to think about a lot of the characters and also often often writers themselves <laughs> um, we sort of work with that with that hole in ourselves we don't really want it filled <laughs> well well that makes well can you say more about that because it, it seems like that might be the superstition if the hole is filled then the writing would stop yeah I mean I don't know okay so I'll back up for a second and say that that gets used as the justification for a lot of bad behavior. Like, oh, I'm being a terrible person because I'm a writer and therefore I'm allowed. And, and that usually is not productive. And I find that people who are most invested in that are often not actually writing because they're too busy like going to do all the stupid things that they claim the writing that they'll eventually do is justifying. <laughs> but, but I do think there's something really odd emotionally about being a writer and that you have to care really deeply about things and you have to be able to pull yourself back from them. Because you can't, I mean, you can't tell the story with your heart on the table necessarily. You, well, you, it's in the you way. have to be a little bit ruthless with it, <laughs> and and it's hard. It's hard to sort of take something you're passionate about, or you wouldn't be writing about it. Like you wouldn't be thinking, "Oh, the world needs to hear this story." If you didn't care, but you have to be willing to sort of manipulate things. You have to be willing to start with something to, to mine the world in this way that I'm never entirely unresponsible to my characters, especially if I feel like, oh, this character might end up becoming some sort of a, a symbol or, or a perceived spokesperson. But you have to shut those voices up some days. And so there is a there is a back and forth that happens. And I think it's sometimes hard to be the friend or relative or loved one of a writer for that reason, because you're dealing with somebody who goes from completely passionate to cold and, and, and analytical. Not only on the page. Sometimes. Okay. Well, that's a lot, Danielle. <laughs> We're all like, you should be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but we've 
so but but no that and that makes that makes a lot of sense in that and but but I'm also I'm interested in that idea when because if you're if you're creating the character right and you're you're getting to know you <laughs> um oh god Maybe I was you singing. should sing the chorus oh <laughs> oh dear um no um but with that um getting to know um the character and then you're saying well this might be a, become a symbol I'm I'm not really curious. Could you say a little bit more about that? Like, what what do you mean? Because that sounds like a, a filter that would stop a lot of things instead of, like, what if you have to figure it out as it goes without a pressure of symbolism? Yeah, and I think eventually you do. But I try not to think about those kind of questions until the editing stage. But there are questions. There are questions of, of audience. There are questions of how something's going to be perceived in in one setting versus another. I mean, I write about a lot of black women, a lot of women who are younger. And I think young women in general, and young black women in particular, are a much maligned group. (laughs) And more is written about them than by them. And so to take these these sort of issues seriously is to risk people saying, oh, well, here's an authentic voice. And the truth is there are lots of authentic voices, right? There are lots of authentic ways to experience being female. There are lots of authentic ways to experience being black. There are lots of authentic ways to experience being young. And so I wouldn't want anybody to, to take a particular story and say, well, this is the, the representative story of what it is to be this kind of a person. And I think that it's something that, that writers who are in any way marginalized or have experienced that do struggle with. I was just talking to Sugi about this at the at the round table. But... Sugi, friend of the show. <laughs> and a friend of mine. And and she was talking about a, a writer who said she specifically wrote a short story collection because she felt like she wrote a novel about somebody of that ethnicity that that would become the sort of stand-in narrative for people of that ethnic background. And she felt like in a short story collection, people couldn't make that kind of a judgment. And, you know, I hadn't ever thought about my work that way before, but I did remember when Virgins came out, it was getting all this attention. I felt like, oh, I wonder if people will read this one story and think like, like that's it, or if they'll be disappointed with the rest of my work when there are, it turned out to be lots of other kinds of voices in my collection or or whether you know I, I think it's important to to see that that voice can contain you know beauty and intelligence and the capacity for all kinds of interesting perspectives on the world but I also didn't want it, people to think oh that's the only voice of, of like a young black writer or a young black woman yeah and it, with your collection you people can't do that they can't I hope they're well, not doing amazed it. What people can do. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I haven't seen it with this particular book but but I in general I I put very little past some people. Okay, okay. <laughs> related to misinterpret things. You know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but but what I what I was what I meant was that when you with the the story that we mentioned before, someone ought to tell her there's nowhere to go. Like that that the the main protagonist is a male voice, so very different than the the narrator of Virgins. Yeah. Right? And so, but that wasn't something you did consciously then um, when you're. Because um, you have another collection on deck, another short story collection, but um, it's not like you picked different stories. Because these were things that you were happened to be interested in, or, yeah, or did I you mean, consciously that one, look I for actually, a voice? That actually was written after the original version of the collection sold, and I have been working on it for years, and I had never quite been able to get it where I wanted it to be. And finally, um, I pushed to finish it, and I pushed to work on it with my editor because I really felt like the collection needed it in some way. I, it did seem to me that there was this absence without it and that it helped to tie a lot of the things together and ground it. I mean, in some ways it was a departure from the other stories, but it also visits a lot of the same themes. I mean, it's still about 
people whose whose sense of what they desire is not matched by their capacity to attain it. And it's also, you know, I had part of the struggle I had with that story is for a long time I was trying to discipline it. And I was like, this is my male war story. And it's going to go from one war back to back to the states and there's going to be this other manifestation of this conflict and I had this idea that these two male characters in the story that somehow that was where the tension was and the tension ended up being right. <laughs> about this little girl and I was like I have to let the story go to the mall and play with makeup really really no that can't be right but the I did princess store <laughs> indeed like it had to go to the glitter store and like and and was that, that a was... backhanded tribute to Mariah Carey? <laughs> it was, it, I would never do a backhanded tribute to Mariah Carey because um, we could talk at some point about the time there was Mariah Carey for Halloween and had her on my birthday cake. And at my birthday party, had people pin the tail on Mariah instead of pin the, I mean, pin the mic on Mariah. Oh, pin I was the tail. Like, yeah, that would be a whole different game. <laughs> Sorry, it was a children's party. I promise, but. Um, yeah, no, there's nothing backhanded about my love for Mariah Carey. And and um, and that will actually serve us later on with one of the song choices. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um but but maybe back to let's see back to this little girl who's and 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 the and the and the male character. So you so, and then you have like this vastly different ages too, like a little little kid. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I was writing that story, and it started with the image of this man and this little girl, and I knew he wasn't her father, and that he was somehow taking care of her. It was really interesting. Really, to me. that was the image that started the story, yeah. Danielle. It was really interesting to me to think about, you know, what people's relationships are like with like not quite step parents. because it seems to me that that's an often very fraught relationship. I mean, I had some of them as a kid, and as an adult, I probably been something like that to some kids and so it's a weird relationship because you don't know too much investment is sometimes more damaging than not enough investment when when you know that your role in that child's life is probably going to be passing through yeah and I think that's something I was thinking about a little bit across the board is, is sort of most of the protagonists are people who are under 30 who are really one of the first generations to be raised without the expectation that we'd all grow up and get married and forever and ever live happily ever after with somebody because most of us were raised by divorced parents or, or parents who were single or some other manifestation of family. And so I thought, well, what does it mean when there are all these other kinds of possibilities? And and what does that do to our emotional logic? And and, and aren't they as genuine kids yeah. in that time? Yeah. And... and how do we sort of make that capacity for love healthy in, in some way? And I mean, that story doesn't end happily, but but I but not because of the lack of genuineness of his affection. Yes, so that part does come through actually. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short another short break here and hear another one of the song choices. Yay! And then when we come back, would you mind reading a, a section of one of the stories, Danielle? Not at all. That was, okay, that would be brilliant. Um, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And on the program today, Danielle Evans. Her story collection, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. Thanks to Tex for Engineering, by the way. We'll be right back. Breaking and some they don't make a martyr out of me. 
you're just tuning in, you've got WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Today, Daniel Evans on Living Writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and uh, here we are back. Daniel's holding the book before <laughs> you suffocate your own fool self. Um, and so, Danielle, would you mind reading for us? Not at all. I thought I'd read the first couple of pages of the last story in the book, which is Robert E. Lee is dead. I love this story. Yeah, and I'll, maybe you talk a little bit about why it's the last story in a second. But for making honor roll, you get these stupid mylar balloons. They were silver on the back and red or blue or pink on the front with congratulations written in big clashing letters. The balloons were supplied by the Army recruiters who had an office across the street from our football field, and they always stuck a green and white U.S. Army sticker on the back. If you lived in Lakewood, then when you got a balloon, your parents picked you up or drove you or drove your home with it in the back seat. Either way, when you got it home, you waited for the balloon to slowly deflate, and when it finally did, your mother smoothed out the wrinkles and put it on a wall or in an album or in a storage box somewhere if you already had so many that another would be redundant. If you lived in Eastdale, then the stupid balloon got in your way the whole time you were walking home. Gina Johnson and I lived in Eastdale. I knew her name already. Everybody did. But Gina was a girl like sunlight. If you were a girl like I was back then, you didn't look at her directly. Usually there were girls following Gina's lead, often literally, wobbling behind her in platform boots they just barely learned to walk in. But she was alone the first day she actually spoke to me. From the top of the hill where our high school began, I had seen her walking ahead of me, briskly and by herself. When she got to the chain-link fence encircling the water dam at the bottom of the hill, Gina threw her backpack over the top of the fence, balanced the heel of her boot against its wobbly surface, and expertly hoisted herself over, barely breaking stride. When I hopped the fence a few moments later, I took my time. Even in sneakers, I was not as slick as Gina, and plus, the balloon kept hitting the side of my face and trying to pop itself on the top of the fence. I was less awkward crossing the high, rickety bridge that was probably the reason the water dam shortcut was closed off to begin with. I took some perverse pleasure in knowing that a fall at the right angle could have killed me, one slip and no more crystal. On the other side of the dam, home surprised me. I always took a minute to recognize my own neighborhood. It seemed like every day a new apartment building was being built or an older store or house torn down. Things changed quickly in those years. Eastdale pushed into the suburb of Lakewood from one side, while White Flight created suburbs of the suburbs on the other. This was the new, new South. Same rules, new languages. The people who could afford to leave Lakewood left, the ones who couldn't put up better fences. The rest of us were left in Eastdale. Old houses, garden apartments, signs in Spanish and Vietnamese. We adapted well enough. We could all curse in Spanish, and we'd skip school for noodle soup as soon as we'd skip for McDonald's. The handful of white kids who still lived in Eastdale adopted linguistic affectations with varying degrees of, degrees of success and would have nothing to do with the Lakewood kids. Eastdale kids and Lakewood kids walked on opposite sides of the hallway and ate on opposite sides of the cafeteria and probably would have worn opposite colored clothes if they could have coordinated it without communicating. The neighborhood in the immediate vicinity of our high school was called the Crossroads. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the South is big on subtlety. I love that part. I was so pleased when you started reading because I didn't know what, which section you were going to read until you you started. Um, yeah, that's I love that moment when you're like, don't, don't ever let anyone tell you that the South is big on subtlety. I mean, that's an, a, a yeah. The the narrator's voices that you create are are so strong. So maybe um, can we talk about how you the whole the language of the voice that's particular to this story versus the language of the voice that starts us off in the collection in, in virgins. Yeah. I mean, I think in some sense, this is a, this is a different character because she has access to a broader, she's a, 
there's more code switching in this story, by, by which I mean sort of going back and forth between a much more formal or, or academic type of speech and reflection and and a more immediate. And partly that's, in my mind, there's a greater degree of, of retrospection in this story, but it's also a function of the kinds of language the character has access to. Because part of the challenge with Virgins was making sure I told that story in her voice and I didn't try to sneak in and and give her words or insights that would have been inauthentic, but at the same time, being able to respect her voice enough to to, to see like all of the beauty and wisdom that it could contain. And and so I think it's interesting that we start with that story, and, and these are the, the two stories that deal with teenage girls, and they're both set in the mid-90s. And so ending here, I think, kind of nicely circles back and creates a kind of interesting circular area where we spent all this time in the middle following people who are adults and kind of wondering how they got to be the adults that they were. So by the time we get back to this story, we're in the same time period with a different perspective and hopefully um, thinking through some of those questions of adolescence with some with some new complications. And I think that the, the complication on the level of prose works and the complication on the level of distance works for that too. Or at least I hope it does. <laughs> and when you say distance, which which what do you mean by that? Daniel. I mean, I think that this character is a little bit further removed from these events than Erica is from the events of Virgins. Oh, They're both okay. past tense stories, but I feel like Virgins is more immediate to me. Whereas we have some interventions in this story that indicate that, that more time has passed. Yes. Especially toward one of the last things that um, Crystal, who becomes Cece when mm-hmm. she makes the cheerleading squad with, with Gina's Halbert um, that she says at the end like so yeah which we won't say since that um, yeah don't want to no spoiler alerts necessary <laughs> we won't go into the very end of the story and it's it's also kind of interesting that this um, this Chris, Crystal she's um, on the verge of going away she's it's senior year right and she's going to be going away to school yeah um, which is different than a lot of people in the neighborhood that you so um that you described for us during the the section of the reading um and so it's actually right before that moment um where she would be going to university and and where we start with virgins yeah i um so it's almost I a think renewal in some sense and i didn't realize this until i looked at all of the stories together how often it came down to this sort of intense relationship between two women and sometimes a romantic relationship, but often just a, a friendship or a family relationship in which sort of the way that girls are, or women are defining themselves against each other. And sometimes that has a natural stopping point and sometimes it has a forced stopping point. But there's there's a way in which that is often damaging and destructive. And I wanted to think about, I mean, one of the things that I feel like gets lost on stories about teenage girls is how much they're reduced to the romantic. Because at least in my experience of being an adolescent, so much of the drama about boys was actually about other women, and it was about a sort Most. of sense of how you see yourself in the world and how you compete or rank yourself with the people you want to be like or want to be not like, who were mostly women. And, and so, a lot of the dangers, even the tensions, are actually more in that area of things rather than, well, might you get your feelings hurt or pregnant or I mean, it's some of the more real dangers right. or and, those and emotional. I think now we're talking about this a little more with the focus on bullying and all those kinds of things that happen but but it's about it's not just about that it's about like identity and and, what you started to talk about danielle how to yeah how you become who you become and and how you um 
how you decide who it is that you want to become. I think so much of that is, is formed through those people that you're comparing yourself to and idealizing or dismissing. And so that was something I wanted to think about a lot in this collection and to think about the seriousness of that and then the way in which, I mean, we joke about teenage girl friendships, but they actually are sort of the root, I think, of a lot of who we grow up to be. Yeah, I don't, I can't, I can't argue with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also when I was reading up about you, Danielle, or things that you had said, just so I could quote you back to yourself, how, how terrifying or annoying. Um, but one of the things you said were, you, of course, you're usually asked, like, who are, like, influences on your writing? And one of the things I thought was notable was that you said that you didn't say Toni Morrison for, for a long time. Um, but then when you were preparing to teach, like, the latest lit class, um, African-American literature, you actually reread all of her novels again and saw in it that the the characters that she could foreground your words um the women's relationships yeah and i love that and then so was that a lens that then you were able to re-see your your own work somehow through that too well, in a very flattering lens but well, yeah but um i mean well yeah, tony Morris, was, yeah she's like but a i think genius. that it was yeah, it was something that i had sort of never seen in my work and i would get sort of irritated when people would say it because i would think you're only saying that because you're trying to think of like a black writer who you take seriously well like you said there's another story where you said in workshop that that tony morrison's name and alice walker yeah yeah. those were the only and it was it is reductive like whenever there's like a new agent out there they're like oh you write like amy tan or whenever there's like um you know you're the next jimple and like there's there's this range of ethnicities in, in which like even though some of those people are doing really interesting formal things or things with content and structure those writers get reduced to their ethnic background and anyone who's of that ethnic background gets reduced to being like those writers, whether or not they have much in common on the level of page. So I didn't want to sort of claim people that I had no claim to stylistically, you know? And, but I, but when I was looking back at her work, I thought, you know, so often there is this dramatic tension between these two women or, or female characters who are, who are shaping each other. And she's able to really take that seriously and not, and not sort of skirt around it or worry even about it. I mean, I don't think Toni Morrison loses sleep over whether or not these characters are serious enough or, or big enough to you know, be worthwhile. She just you know, does things in this bold, beautiful way. Like in Sula. Sula comes to mind yeah. so much when we're talking about this. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of when those women's lives, whatever else happens in them, are, are shaped by each other. And that Sula, Sula, we were girls together, even at the end of the the book, That that's the thing that matters and I think that that's a really interesting way to think about it yeah that's the moment from their lives yeah yeah it's it's beautiful that is and so well and so and is that one of the books you chose to to teach in your classes I didn't I teach um an intro class so I I went with the bluest eye which I think is probably the most accessible Morrison text and and also I like to teach the play Venus and it goes really well with that play oh okay to, to think about the sort of ways in which those issues are being treated and not treated also, I I both like and take issue with the way that Toni Morrison introduces The Bluest Eye in the most recent edition. And a kind of Can you remind me? I, it's been a while this, since I've read it. Um introduction where she says, like, these are all the things I did wrong in this book because it was my first book, <laughs> which I think is both. I mean, I love the book. So there are not I think that she says she did things wrong that she did, in fact, do. But I can see some of what she's saying. But I also think it's an interesting thing to hand to undergrads who are sort of learning to be critical 
to sort of say, no, it's okay to step in and think about the way the text is achieving these things and what it's trying to achieve, and you don't have to Even take it from for someone granted. who's like a giant yeah. in American literature. So I think it's an interesting thing to teach. Huh. And so let's let's talk a moment also because before you read um, Robert e. from Robert E. Lee is dead, Danielle, you you said uh, like there's a reason you chose to to end it. And so so when you were when you were actually doing uh, not end, what am I saying? <laughs> How you chose to structure the collection itself? Um, so this was your first story collection. Right. So how did you how how did you go about deciding how to structure it with the stories? Well, was, I mean, the decision to put Robert E. Last, e. Lee last was in conversation with my editor. And I think it, it did it work really nicely because it created that circularity that I really liked. I had originally, Did you know for sure you wanted Virgins to lead because that had already been placed in the Paris Review? I didn't. Review? And I had some worries about that. But I think that it worked. Um because it worries does... what you mentioned earlier? Yeah, just okay. because I felt like that story had become so identified with my work that people would open it and be like, oh, that story again. Or, or oh, I expect everything to be like this story and then be taken a lot of different places but and be somehow mad at me for that. But um... <laughs> No one's going to be mad at you. They shouldn't <laughs> was, be. How dare they? But it was nicely circular. And I also, I mean, originally I had written the story, Wherever You Go, There You Are, with the idea that it was the last story in the book because it was the only story I wrote specifically for the collection as it existed then. And I thought it ended on this really lovely moment of ambivalence, which left open the possibility of change and also opened the possibility of continued disaster. And I and Robert E. Lee ends on this note of regret, which is which is perhaps a more interesting place to leave the book. It's 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 I see what you mean by regret, but I think and it's also this um mature self-knowledge where you then from that you have hope in this person because they're able to see that in themselves and yeah yeah no I gave an early version of of one of the stories to my friend and I was like look I finally wrote a story with a happy ending and she was like you left them crying in a car by the side of the road what's wrong with you it's not a happy ending <laughs> and so I, mean, I was like but no but they figured it all out and and now they know what they're doing to each other and she was like Still not a happy ending. Still crying. <laughs> but, um, but you're like, but wait it... till you know what's on the radio. <laughs> the song on the radio. <laughs> but it was. I, I think, and I think a lot of these stories are about that moment when people realize what it is they've been doing. And, and the stories don't always promise you that they'll do something different. But I think that's not the point. And nor should it be. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and we'll... We'll be back. You've got WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers here with Danielle Evans. Right back. It's not chips, we're not cracked, or we're shattered. Your money, money, Cause you was penny pinching my accounts laced attention about
a show, but you won't see me for free, boy, this ain't no promo. And I'll shake now, wherever you've been laying, you can stay now. Got a bottle, baby, G, and pull the shades down. I'm on a plane now, and don't keep calling from your mama house. When I break, I break, boy, up on my face, boy, up on my face, boy, up on my face, I break, up on my face, boy. Hello, You've Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Danielle Evans. Thanks for being here, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yay. <laughs> me too. For me too. And a quick shout out and thanks uh, to Claire McGinnis at Riverhead for um, sending me your book. Yeah, and for just being generally fantastic. I sent her like 20 emails a day, and Miho too. Thank you, Claire and Miho. <laughs> And Riverhead. <laughs> right. yeah. And Sarah and Aisha and all the people who like help me pay my rent and all that good stuff. <laughs> and thanks again to Tex for engineering for us, making us sound good and, and playing all the great music um, that Danielle that you picked out. So, um, so um, uh, that was actually... Um, we came through. There was the Mariah there. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't promise you Mariah Carey and, and, and not deliver... <laughs> <laughs> that could be part of your mantra, right? <laughs> That's just that says it all. <laughs> I mean, there are certain people you've also in love with in childhood that you could forgive them almost any trajectory. I mean, barring like a Mel Gibson, Gibson type breakdown. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Unless Mariah Carey becomes like horribly racist and homophobic and starts abusing people, um, I will love her forever. <laughs> what do you think about that movie though, Glitter? I mean, no, it wasn't. I mean. You don't have to love everything somebody does to love them. Sometimes love, like sometimes you watch like American Idol and you're like, I wish somebody loved you enough to tell you this wasn't your thing before you embarrassed yourself. <laughs> and sometimes I feel that way about celebrities too. Right. Yeah, definitely. But they one. are, as my grandfather used to say, laughing all the way to the bank. So. Yeah. Yeah. She made that movie and they were playing it on the plane. So yeah, something was, something good was happening from that. Um well, so Danielle, with the, with, I think it's also interesting that that song had two women's voices, and we were just talking about that. So two women's voices in, in conversation. Yeah. Uh, um, serendipity. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I did that totally on purpose and intentionally, because I knew exactly where we'd be at this point. Exactly. I know. I love how you guided the conversation. Um, I moonlight as Miss Cleo. <laughs> Many moonlighting. Well, when you've mentioned your editor before, what who who is your editor? My editor is Sarah McGrath at Riverhead, and she's really great. I mean, she spent a lot of time with the book, and she spent a lot of time with the book when she was right back in the office with a newborn baby at home. So, um, you know, it was a really, a really good. I mean, people say they go, they don't edit anymore, but that's but, what I wanted to ask Sarah you. Actually, does, so what does that mean? Like when? So what was the relationship like with? regard to the writing with the words and the back and forth well i mean she would send me a letter she sent me an editorial letter about each story in the book and i would sort of for a while i was writing her letters back and then at a certain point i was keeping them mostly to myself because she didn't want to go into it with my explanation of the story sort of standing in the way of her reading the revision but i helped it was really useful for me to write the letters in such a way that i now use it as an exercise for my students because Sometimes I'd be writing and I'd say, wait, that's actually not, I would be defending something and then I'd realize that I had no interest in defending it or I'd be writing, saying, oh, well, I'm trying to do this thing and then realize that wasn't what I wanted to be doing at all. And other times it would just so clearly be articulated on the page that I could then go back and do whatever it was I said I was trying to do in the letter. 
I'd actually start writing letters explaining the editorial changes that I'd made before I'd actually made them because they became more advice to myself than than to my editor. And and um, you didn't always send them to Claire. To Sarah. Oh but, Sarah. Sorry. But um, <laughs> No, I mean toward the end of the process I was I was holding on to them. And so it was um and we talked a lot about, you know, what would belong in this book versus what would because there were some other stories that didn't make it because they didn't quite thematically tie in with the others as well. And there were some stories that, you so know, I just couldn't get to want... where I wanted them to be, to a place where we were both happy with them. I mean, there was a story that I fought with forever. And I mean, the problem was I was just, I was too attached to the truth of the story in a, in a way that perhaps uh, the that, that song that we just played was speaking deeply to my soul. Because <laughs> I was, it, it really, it was, it was trying so hard to be a story, and it had its lovely moments. But at its heart, it was a really pretentious, drunk email, and so it, it wasn't ever going to make it into the story because it had no desire to sort of enrich the world. It had a desire to, I don't know, be angry at somebody who broke my heart. <laughs> oh, so was the actual framework of the story itself a drunk email? No, no, that no. would have been smarter. Oh, oh, but then I would have had to make one to myself, and you know, I only do that elliptically. <laughs> Unless I'm on the radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know the radio is a strange place to be often, especially when you're quite sleepless um, as, and on the road as you are. Yeah, yeah. Your... I'm at the beginning of, I'm, being, I'm reading in Madison tomorrow and then heading back to D.C. for five minutes to check on my cat who will pretend to be unloved and neglected. And then I'm heading up to New York to read at Columbia, actually, and then I'm going back to actually teach my students for a couple of days and then I had it back up to New York the next week to read McNally Jackson on October 12th and then I had a little bit of a break I'm gone that weekend for the faculty retreat <laughs> I don't know what it is we retreat from but what I, I think our students and then, um, I hope it's a day at the spa <laughs> no last is a day of meetings right yeah um, I'm just joking they'll send you to yeah. some beautiful location and then you're like but we're meetings. We're having meetings. We don't get to see this. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's lovely to be working at a school that will, like, take you away for the weekend and put you in a hotel and feed you. And, and you get to meet your colleagues who you never see because I only see the people in the English department. So it's exciting. And then I'm headed to uh, UI Carbondale's Lit Fest at the end of the month, which means um, I'll be missing the the rally, the John Stewart and Stephen Colbert dueling rallies on the lawn, <laughs> which seems somehow too cruel and unfair that I had to stay through the Tea Party rally and miss that one. But, you know, I'm really excited to be invited to Carbondale. Did, did you actually swing by the Tea Party rally just oh, to no. check it out no. or to, like, carry your own um, incorrectly smelled <laughs> smell black? No, I'm just, that's awesome. I hid in my apartment yeah. that weekend. Um, and, uh... And then I am reading in November back in D.C. with Patricia Engel, whose book Vita is really beautiful. I just read it on the bus back from New York a couple weeks ago, and I was really excited to, to read it. So I'm really excited to be reading with her in, in at Politics and Prose in D.C. That Well, that sounds like what it sounds. Well, you've got a lot ahead of, ahead of you, but how exciting to. Yeah, no, really great. Yeah, a good. Well, I wanted to go back for a moment to talk about when you said some of the stories didn't make it in because of the theme. And so how so it sounds like theme is very important to you when you're considering like a holistic quality of the short story collection. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been talking to my students a lot about this, about actually they've been working on poetry somewhat reluctantly. But why? Um, why? Really, why? <laughs> I don't know why brow. they're so reluctant. I keep asking why they're so reluctant and, and it scares them. And I tried to make them write a villanelle, which apparently terrified them. So 
everyone was rhyming like day and tray and I was like we can do better I've seen you do better oh, you so write you lovely say. prose so um, <laughs> well you started out writing poems I did write poems I wrote poems I actually thought that I wanted to go for the dual MFA and, and then I went to Iowa where that isn't done typically and would not have been for me anyway because I write narrative poetry which is not so much Iowa poetry but I I don't think it was any great loss to the poetry world that I, that I stopped writing poems. Well, you're yet young. <laughs> I mean, I may write some poems again, but I think I, I never had the same level of investment in making the poems right that I did with fiction. Like, I would write a poem, and i think, oh, that's nice. Oh, you know, that's done. And I, and I wouldn't struggle with it or lose sleep over it in the way I think you have to to really be a poet. But... um. But anyway, so so with my students, I keep trying to say, okay, but when you call attention to this thing, there has to be a reason you're calling attention to it. Like this line in the poem is taking up all of the space in the poem. Why? Or you put this one rhyme in, and that means like you're you're giving the audience a big sign to say, look here. But what are we looking at? There better be something there worth looking for. And I think in a, in a story collection, you know, something that feels really dramatically different is like a big neon sign saying, look at me, look at me. And it, and it can, you know take the energy from the collection one way or the other um if it's too people will either love that story or hate that story and either way it will become the thing that's being talked about as opposed to the overall arc of what you're trying to do yeah so i see i see and so does that mean then what happens to a story like that do you kind of like beat it into submission and say (laughs) you story look here and does it or do you find or is there another place for it because you do have this other second collection coming out i don't i have a novel that i'm working on now so and a and a third novel sort of very tentatively in the works but i mean i have probably enough stories for another collection down the line but i'd have to i mean there are other stories that there's like the i don't know the outlet mall of stories <laughs> like there's something slightly wrong with them and I have to wait till I have the time to actually go back and, and, and look at what it is and, and figure out if we can dress it up better and I don't know that they all go together in the way that I felt like a lot of these stories went together um they're the sort of misfit stories and some of them I'm still very much working on and you know would hope to be submitting to journals or I'm submitting to journals some of them I've sort of temporarily abandoned because they have what seemed to me fatal flaws but but which could eventually be overcome. What would be a, like an example of a fatal flaw? Um, well, like, I mean, the story I was just talking about, there kind of is no there there, I think. And then the there are other stories that just, it's not even that the story itself is a fatal flaw, but I feel like some of them, I've already written that story better. And so there's a version of, of a story that I felt like, oh, I needed to write that to write that other story, but they're really covering the same material and there's no need for these two stories to exist in the world. Um, I mean, possibly I could get it polished to a point where somebody might theoretically publish it, but why? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't want to think about it as like a resume line. And as a story, I feel like, oh, this is work I've already done better. Because so the passion. I'm going to walk away from yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. It has to, it, it, the feeling has to be there. Um, well, thank you so much for bringing your stories here today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. Very, I've, I've loved it. And and so everyone, you can go out. There's no fatal flaw here. And before <laughs> you suffocate your own fool self, um, the story collection by Danielle Evans. Um, look for her novel to come and, and well, everything to come. 
maybe even a few poems. Who knows? <laughs> Perhaps. We'll see. I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold my breath for that. Though. Okay. <laughs> Don't so, so before you suffocate yeah, exactly. your own cool self. Read. read some fiction. Okay. Well, thanks again, Danielle Evans on Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel. Thanks again to Tex, and thanks to you out there for listening. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 6, 2010. In New York, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up on today's newscast, the Supreme Court hears arguments in a First Amendment case that features anti-gay protests at military funerals. The first civilian trial of a former Guantanamo detainee begins in New York. And Congress calls for an investigation into mortgage fraud after more banks reveal improper review of thousands of foreclosures. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. It's been only three days since an environmental catastrophe in Hungary killed four and injured more than 120 people. The holding wall of a reservoir at an aluminum plant collapsed, releasing massive amounts of toxic industrial waste into seven villages in the western part of the country. FSRN's Amy Miller has this update. Gabor Fregetsky with the World Wildlife Foundation Hungary is at the village of Kalantar near the Markel River. He says all fish stock have already been destroyed and the death toll for other wildlife will be high as well. Rescue missions are underway. So rescue teams are working uh, hard and uh, we can see soldiers coming up and down, uh, helping people, washing cars, washing everything. Um, and the rescue teams are also working and um, there's uh, a lot of help uh, coming 